I consider it a privilege to be with you tonight. Um, when Pastor John was speaking this morning. His first point made an impression upon me. Does anybody remember what his first point, what his first word was? Desperate. And it brought to mind a song that we typically sang in our church in Massachusetts pretty often. And it's kind of a, um, it's not a Sovereign Grace song, it's not a Getty song, so you'll forgive me if I refer to it. It's a Michael W. Smith song from almost 20 years ago. And it's a very simple song called Breathe. Does anybody know that song? You ever heard Breathe? Well, I'm not going to sing it for you. But you know the word, Joshua, you know the song Breathe. Congratulations. This is the air I breathe, he wrote. Which I thought was goofy right off the bat. But I grew to love the song. This is the air I breathe. Your holy presence living in me. This is my daily bread. This is my daily bread. Your very word spoken to me. And I, I, I'm desperate for you. And the song goes on. But I thought I'd share that just to satisfy myself, basically, because it's a cool song. And John, wherever you went, where'd John go? There you are, over there. Okay, thank you for bringing the word to me this morning. And it was a good word, a good first point this morning. Folks, I, I prayed about uh, what to speak on tonight. Um, initially, I thought I would bring a talk on how to hear a sermon. I have that in my head. I'm doing that a lot these days. It's very weird for me although I listen to people online all the time, but to sit and receive a sermon, that's, well, I just haven't done that much in the last 150 years or so. So I thought about bringing a talk on that, and I, I dismissed that. Then I thought about a message from an experience that I had six years ago, which internalized the 23rd Psalm in my life like has never happened. I was overseas and the Lord ministered to me and challenged me. And I thought about talking about that, and I dismissed that too. Instead, I'm going to lead with this tonight. I don't know if you know this or not, but there are people who think we're crazy. Did you know that? And maybe you've even had someone say that to you. I have. And some of the time, maybe more than some, I am in some sympathy with that accusation. We're going to talk about that tonight. We're going to get to what I consider to be, and I'm, this isn't a technical designation, but for purposes of this message tonight, the most uncrazy Bible verse that there is. And you'll see why I call it that when we get to it. I think the evidences that we are crazy are significant. And I want to start with, give me my first slide there, please. Some things that we say. We say these things. We actually believe these things. First of all, we go around saying there is one God and there is only one God, don't we? Don't we say that? I mean, do you say that? 
Maybe you sort of say it under your breath a little bit, depending on where you are, but we say that. We believe that. There's one God and there's only one God. And secondly, we say that one God is knowable. I know those are hard to read, so listen to me say them. I just put them up there because when they're all up there, you're going to be impressed with how much you know. We say that He is knowable. There is one God, and He's not just off in the distant universe someplace, galaxy, unknowable, unreachable. We go around saying we know Him. Yeah, there's one God, and we know Him personally. Don't you say that. Go like this. Because I know you say that. I know that you believe that. Thirdly, we say that He is a Him. Now that gets us in trouble. Because he's not supposed to be only a him, he's supposed to be something else. But we say, without apologizing, he is a him. Fourthly, we say that he had no beginning and no end. Now this is when people really start thinking we're crazy. How can you say there is in existence something, somebody that never began and never ends? You guys are weird. But we say that. We say that our God is eternal. Fifthly, we say, as if that's not strange enough, we say, oh, and by the way, <laughs> we, we say that God is three persons in one essence. You probably didn't say that in the last 24 hours or so, did you? But if pressed to it, you would say that. You would say He's three persons, three distinct persons, they're not all mudged together, they're distinct, and he is of, they are of the same essence. And when they ask us to explain that, we typically say, I don't know. That's about as much as we can go. And it took the church 400 years to get that far. But we say this, and people think we're nuts. As if it's not enough to go around saying you, you believe in one God, you say that he's this thing of three persons in a single essence. Well, we say it. Number six, we say that the second person of this one God was and is an eternal son. It wasn't invented or made up. He has always been the son. <laughs> and that he came to earth as baby Jesus and grew up into a man and then got executed, but then didn't stay executed. And they're really looking at us cross-eyed now. What do you mean he didn't stay? He rose from the dead. Get out. Nobody rises from the dead. Well, Jesus did. That's what we say. And we say, you know, by the way, while he was around on earth, he was doing miracles. Awesome miracles. Not tricks with fish and bread. He was doing bona fide, supernatural phenomena that there's no explanation for other than he just did it miraculously. And he did a lot of those. And then we say that he was tempted by the main evil spirit. And people go, the what? And we say, the devil, Satan. And there, by the way, we also say there is a main evil spirit. And he, Jesus, the Son of God, was tempted by the main evil spirit. 
Have you had any experience with people looking weird at you? Or questioning your sanity? Next slide, or the next piece of that slide. I'm not done, folks. That's not all we go around saying. There's more stuff. We say that the second person of God, when he was executed, took upon himself somehow the sins of people. Which presupposes that we also believe there's such a thing as sin. That's a very politically incorrect word to use today. But we, we don't apologize and we say God decreed that certain things are right, certain things are wrong, and breaking His law is a violation, it is a sin, and that the second person of the Godhead, when He was executed, somehow or other took the sins of people upon Himself in some kind of an atoning way. in some kind of a substitutional way. And we say that that atoning for others' sins is a great thing. It's an awesome thing. In fact, it's so powerful a thing that were it possible, it would be enough of an atoning for sins that it could pay for every soul that was ever conceived of the sins they owe to a holy God. We don't say that He did do that. We say that it could. It's enough of a payment to satisfy. That's what we say. <laughs> and then, if all of that's not weird enough, we got more to go. We go around saying that this Son of God who rose from the dead stood on a mountain and you can go to that place today, folks. Maybe some of you have been there. To the very spot where he did what? Rose back up into heaven. And you can go to that spot. And of course, there's all kinds of churches and shrines and stuff around. But you can stand within sight of where that happened. Where, in fact, there were human eyewitnesses who stood there and went, what are we watching? And angels going, what are you guys all freaked out about? Who were there? Angels. So you believe in angels too? We do. Man, folks, you guys are a bunch of weirdos for believing all this in the public view. Then we say that if a person somehow or other receives that atoning for sins, assuming those are real, that the third person of the Godhead comes and lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit. And then we say, quite happily, that once done, none can be undone. Once done, it cannot ever be undone. It will not ever be undone. 
And lastly, and you could add some more to the list, I'm sure, but I'm going to clip it at 13. We say that the second person of God, the Son of God, will actually physically return to planet Earth at a time of His own choosing and will rule the whole planet permanently. Next slide, gentlemen. That's, that's all exhibit one that we are crazy. Exhibit two is that we are utterly uncompromising on exhibit one. We don't say, here are some propositions, here are some thoughts, here's some nice, cool things to warm your heart, and maybe they're true, maybe they're... No, we say, they are true. Recently, a friend of mine, whom I value, has said, Neil, that's the one ring. I'm sorry that Charlie's not here to hear me say this. How many of you know what the one ring is? Three of you? Okay. <laughs> Consult with Pastor Charlie and he'll explain the one ring to you. My friend says, Neil, you have the one ring. You're like Sauron in the Lord of the Rings going around burning down whoever doesn't have your kind of certainty. That's what you're like with your certainty about all of these ideas. You're, you're crazy, Neil. Exhibit three. Oh, sometimes our behavior weighs against us. Do I really need to demonstrate and illustrate this? We have all of these ideas of exhibit one plainly buried in our minds and hearts, and then we come along slobbering almost with excitement about our certainty of Exhibit 1, and then we still do stuff like hurt each other. And people watch that. They see that. I don't know if you've had someone call you on your inconsistency for all your Exhibit 1 and Exhibit 2 surety. They say... You hurt your wife. You hurt your kids. You Christians, you think you're hot stuff, and then you go out and do all kinds of inconsistent stuff. You dabble in drugs. You drink. You engage in alternative lifestyles. And I could go on and on. I'm not going to belabor this point. I don't think I need to. I think you would agree. We are inconsistent. And it's a bad witness sometimes. Not all the time. But sometimes we're an embarrassment to ourselves. Fourth exhibit that we're crazy is our historical record. I'm not going to belabor this too much. The church is not always acting in an appealing, compassionate, consistent way. My one example, and I'm not judgmental or critical about the state of Massachusetts in 1675. Do you know the name? I know Pastor Randy and Julie will know this name. John Elliott is a missionary in Massachusetts out of Boston to the Indians, to the Native Americans. They didn't call them Native Americans and they called them Indians. And it was an incredible story in time when John Eliot went to the Indians and learned their language, the Algonquin language. 
and said, oh, i got to learn how to talk to you. He learns how to talk to their language. He translates the Bible into Algonquin. Oh, wait, they don't write their own language. So he figures out how to construct an alphabet, teaches it to them, and then gives them the Bible. And there are many, many people who come to Christ in that time. And then during King Philip's War, the English round up the praying Indians and kill many of them and put several, 2,000, I think, on Deer Island in Boston Harbor in what is in essence a concentration camp. And they start dying of starvation. This is what Christians did. Now, I'm not critical because it was a time of great war. But the church can be indicted for a number of inconsistencies over the centuries. That's exhibit four. The last one is what I'm just going to call Bible-based cults. It's easy to identify the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and other cults as destructive, weird, crazy groups. But when groups spring up that are using the Bible pretty much as we use it, maintaining a fairly solid core of doctrine and theology, and then weird out and become a destructive cult, the rest of us are a little embarrassed at that. So my point is, folks, in all of this, is it really should be of little surprise to you and me when people call us crazy. And I feel this. I am not isolated from non-Christians, from former evangelical Bible-believing Christians, and they haunt me. Sometimes, a lot on Facebook, by the way, but sometimes other places. And I notice in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, even Jesus as he's going from town to town before he's crucified, was accused of being nuts. In Matthew chapter 9, I stole Dan Esau's Bible, by the way. So I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. The reason I stole it is from him is because it's giant print and I can read it. So Matt, thank you, Dan. Matthew chapter 9, just a very quick example. The Pharisees were saying of Jesus, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Who does that? You could hear them thinking. He's nuts. He's worse than nuts. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 2. John the Baptist is in prison. He heard of the works of Christ. He sent word to his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Now this is not an accusation that Jesus is crazy, but it's a doubt. He's wondering. And much has been put into thinking about trying to get into the head of John the Baptist here by preachers and scholars, and I'm not going to explore that really. But it's just a moment where here's a guy wondering, is this the real thing? And Jesus, of course, sends back an excellent answer. People also thought that Jesus' disciples 
were crazy. Matthew chapter 12. And verses 1 and 2. At that time Jesus went on on the Sabbath through the grain fields. Disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of the grain and eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Are they nuts? You can't break the Sabbath laws. It's an indictment. that they're, your, your guys are a little off balance here, Jesus. And lastly, in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is before Festus, Acts chapter 26. And I love this. I really do. Because it almost uses the word crazy. Acts chapter 26, verse 24. Paul was saying this in his defense. Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Paul says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. He's actually accused of being crazy in the text. I love it. Now, folks, it's not my desire to discourage you tonight. All of this negative really isn't. But I do want you to appreciate the gravity of how crazy some people think in this world that we're living in think we are. And it's nothing new. We live on the border of crazy land. I've had in the last three years probably ten people, intelligent, educated people, ask me with anger in their questions. How can any evangelical Christian, of which you say you are, Neil, be in support of our current president? And I give the best answer that I can, as most of you would if you were in support of him or not. We live on the border in this time that we're living in of people thinking we're nuts which the first disciples did too. They did not have the benefit of two millennia of church history as we do. We often sort of stand behind our church history and say, well, well, you've got to understand how we've developed. They couldn't appeal to that argument at all. They were following Jesus around Sometimes wondering themselves, what's he doing? <laughs> what, what is he doing? Folks, is Jesus real? Young people, is he real? Is he who he said he was? Or is the world right about us? I can imagine... John looking over at Peter in the passage that really we're at tonight in Matthew 17. You can look in your scriptures at that chapter. That's where we're headed. John looking over at Peter and saying, are you nuts? Have you completely lost your mind? I can imagine Peter and the rest of the guys looking at James and John and saying, are you guys crazy? 
you got your mom to lobby for you. Even among themselves, sometimes they're one, and they're looking at Jesus maybe at one point in John chapter 4 and said, no, you, you didn't say Samaria. What you, you know, in the King James, I think it's, we must needs go through Samaria. We don't talk like that. We're going through Samaria. You didn't say Samaria, did you? We don't go through Samaria. Even they are questioning, which brings us to Matthew 17. And I want you to look at this passage. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led him up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. You know, when the Scripture uses the word behold, it's always cool. And behold. There appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. The disciples heard this. They fell on their faces. They were terrified. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Rise, have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. Give me the next two slides, gentlemen. That's the most uncrazy verse in the Bible. Why? Why? Mark tells us they go up on a mountain. It's a high mountain. And I think this whole passage is one of the most underrated moments in history. Not just biblical history, all history. Interestingly to me, Mark also relates this event, as does Luke. And even John. Although, John, if you've studied the Gospels at all, you notice that John's a little different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Even John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is a powerful moment, folks. If anyone is going to dismiss Matthew's recording of this event, they also need to dismiss Mark and Luke and probably John too. You just need to say you're all crazy for believing any of that. Any of those guys. That this happened? Get out. Our culture today is saying, get out. We have friends, maybe family, who are saying, you're nuts. For believing that? <laughs> Folks, when I get confused, depressed, feeling alone, I find myself going back to verses like this. And like the one that I shared with you we talked about three months ago, 
when I had the privilege of talking about Jesus stilling the storm. This is still on my heart. We have Peter and James and John up on a mountain. Which mountain? Scholars ask questions like that. You're not asking that probably. You're going, whatever mountain. But it, it's, a, it's a fair question. Which mountain? Mount Hermon. 9,100 feet. Perpetual snow cap. It's on the order of the Rockies. You think they went up there? If you go there, you'll find all kinds of shrines and churches up there. As you will on Mount Tabor, which is only 1,900 feet. I think it's a different mountain altogether. I think it's Mount Naran, which I like because it looks kind of like Sugarloaf <laughs> or McAfee's Knob. It's a little over 3,000 feet, and it's a logical place. It's in the root, in the passage. The things that are going on before the transfiguration and after, this is a logical place. I think it's there. doesn't matter. We're not told what mountain. And then Moses and Elijah show up out of nowhere. Have you ever had someone say to you, you think Moses was a real guy? You think Elijah? Elijah's a little easier to think is a real guy because he's sooner to us. Moses is 4,000 years ago, 3,800 years ago. Jewish scholars say, you know, Moses is a tradition. Don't take him so literally. Well, Peter and James and John took him literally. He, he shows up, the real guy, not a hologram. And Elijah, representing, of course, the law and the prophets, convening, validating, and noting that Jesus is the Messiah, and probably talking about, because Luke tells us a little bit, they appeared in glory and spoke of his, Jesus' departure, which was about to be accomplished in Jerusalem. They're talking to him about what's about to happen, which is Jesus is going to go down to Jerusalem and be killed. And I thought about that. If you knew somebody said, you know what, in uh, six months you're going to die. You're going to, in fact, you're not just going to die, you're going to be killed. So if you could choose two people to come and encourage you, I thought Moses and Elijah would be good guys to show up. But it's not just that that happens or that Jesus is glowing. By the way, a glowing face is not without precedent. Who also had a glowing face? Moses did, right? This is different. The Greek word here means transformed. It's like from the inside he begins to glow and shine. Oh, I watched a stupid video. You know, I'm such a sucker for YouTube. I admit it. I confess it. I typed in the transfiguration on YouTube and came up with, oh, a wonderful video. It annoyed me. They had Jesus in a white, like, smock. And they had Moses and Elijah like they were ghosts. And I thought, what nonsense. I still love YouTube. It's not just that those things happen. It's what happens next. 
When we get to verse 5, which I'm calling the most uncrazy verse in the Bible, he was still speaking. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Peter thinks about this decades later, and he writes about it. It's cool what Peter says in 2 Peter. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. We were with Him on the holy mountain. I think it's interesting that Peter calls the voice the majestic glory. Now, everybody would say that's the Father. Remember back in the beginning, this crazy thing we believe that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, that's the Father. Peter doesn't call him the Father, and I don't know why that is, but he is overwhelmed with a memory here of how mowed down we were isn't it great? Folks, if you can imagine yourself there alongside three very real and normal guys, and this thing happens. Would you be thinking and worrying about the things that you typically think and worry about? That's my point tonight. This moment in time. I go back to this. Am I crazy? I've got people that I like, care about calling me crazy. Have I invented this whole faith? No. I go back to a verse like this. Would you be worrying about the stuff you're worrying about tonight if you were one of Peter, James, and John and you had that memory, at least in that moment. I'm sure they had all kinds of stuff percolating in their hearts and minds and emotions and spirit. But in that moment, all sadness disappears. All dread and guilt from past failures, evaporate. Any addictions you have just seem silly. Depression is gone. Confusion and disappointment become irrelevant. Mental illness, and I don't care how crazy you are. Some of us are particularly crazy. just flees in that moment. <laughs> it's the most uncrazy moment that I can ever imagine. And you're thinking, oh, Neil, that would be so nice. Or maybe some of you are a little more dark in your thinking and you go, oh, Neil, how could you be so naive to imagine 
that all of the stuff we struggle with would just be magically dissipated in a moment like that. Indeed, I do. I think the Father and the Son there in the same moment, and Peter and James and John with all the whatever they struggled with, would at least for that moment be healed and then live out their lives remembering that moment. You with me? I, I can taste it. That's one of the reasons I kind of resent a little bit. Is that a bad word? No, it's a good word. I resent manufactured moments like that in churches. Maybe Peter sensed that this was a cool moment. And maybe that's why he says, Oh, oh can we keep this Bible conference going for a little while here, Jesus? I'll set up, we'll, we'll, we'll camp. It'll be camping. I'll set some tents up. Can we, keep, can we keep hold of this? I mean, they were scared. It was an awesome thing. What did the voice say to them? It's kind of cool. Listen to him. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Which... It's much like the baptism of Jesus when the same kind of thing happened. Those two times that we know about. This is my son. And I, I don't know, you know, I could read it to you in Greek, but I don't know that it was in Greek. I don't know what language the majestic glory spoke to Peter, James, and John. We don't know what language. But they understood it. And I don't know what tone of voice you know, I've heard preachers preach the transfiguration and they have the majestic glory yelling, Hey! This is my beloved son! I heard one audio Bible that had it in a feminine voice. This is my beloved son. It's, it's folly to speculate the tone of voice. But they understood it. And it made a point, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Akuete ausi in Greek. Listen to Him. I don't know if it was in Greek. It's in Greek in our New Testament. Folks, you and I need to listen to Him. Are you... Here's the preacher in me coming out now. Are you listening to him? I don't know that it would be all sweetness and light. I'm not promising that Jesus would, you know, would come and if you were if you actually had a ten minutes with him and he'd hold your hand, he'd say, I know you're going through a hard time. I know you've seen some tough stuff. Let me just comfort. I don't I can't guarantee that whatever he would say to you is just going to be sweetness and light. What did he say to Peter? Seems like I did I got a slide for what he said to Peter? Yeah. 
John chapter 21, truly, I, this is after the resurrection on the beach. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. This was said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. He, Peter, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. But I don't know what he would say to you, what he is saying to you, but are you listening to him? That's my question. He's the same Jesus today as he was back then, and people think we're crazy? Okay, so be it. And you and I need to have the courage to be to graciously and kindly and compassionately and patiently say, okay, it's all right that you think I'm nuts, or you think I've invented this, or you think I've been brainwashed. That's okay. But folks... This is the kind of stuff we believe. We walk by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. Amen? You believe that, I suspect. I do. And He is present here tonight. He is? <laughs> yeah. In His Spirit. And I want you to be encouraged for whatever you're dealing with these days. And I don't know what you're dealing with, and Pastor Charlie doesn't know, and Pastor John, well, Pastor John might know, because he's a knowledgeable guy. Well, we don't know what each other is dealing with, but whatever you are dealing with, what would he say to you tonight? The Father said to those guys, listen to him. And I don't have time tonight to talk about how to listen to him, but you can do it. And you need to do it. What's he saying to you? Listening to him is the normal Christian life, folks. Right? No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. In fact, I would suggest that anything other than listening to him is not the normal Christian life. Oh, we have doubts and dry spots, and I know all of that. But our goal is to hear his voice personally. And yes, we are different from anyone and everyone else that is not a Christian. I'm sorry. I really am. I wish we could travel amongst the cool people and just be welcomed in and accepted. Our family members who think we're nuts, they would just say, oh, now I see. You gave the perfect argument and I, and I submit to it. I yield to it. I, w I wish that was what we could do. We could go to conferences and read books. And... The occupational hazard of being a believer in Jesus Christ by faith is that we walk with Him invisibly by faith and no one else can see, see Him. And we can't see Him. But we need to hear Him. That's what's on my heart tonight, folks. Let's learn how to, and maybe you do know already, but let's commit to hearing His voice. It's the sanest, most uncrazy thing we can do.